Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. In defense of good works, it's a strange sermon title. Does the notion, does the notion of Christian deeds, of Christian good works, actually need to be defended? Well, during my sabbatical, I became a little concerned that they might. While I was away, the other pastors preached through Galatians masterfully. I might add, the joke around the office is that I was going to come back and re-preach Galatians with a series entitled, What They Should Have Said. Um, but as you know, they did a good job with those sermons. I personally was profoundly blessed. And as you heard repeatedly from them, Galatians is Paul's strongest defense of what we call justification through faith alone apart from works. If you are unfamiliar with church and church language, that's just simply saying we believe that we are justified, we are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing good that we do. And we believe that. The church in Galatia had people coming in saying you need faith in Jesus and obedience to the law, and Paul says no way. That's a false gospel. It should be rejected to the fullest extent. We are justified through faith in Jesus, not our good deeds, period. Now, our tradition, the Reformed Protestant tradition, loves that uncompromised gospel, and may we love it even more. But something interesting happened while I was soaking in the good news of Galatians along with you. My sabbatical afford me the opportunity to step back and evaluate our tradition for any blind spots that we may have. And of course, we are not so arrogant to assume that we don't have them. And I'm convinced one of those is our failure to appreciate the supreme importance of good works within the Christian faith. And I want to show you what I mean with a little thought experiment. Our kids have chores they are all expected to do every night. The most dreaded of these is the dishes, not surprisingly. Well, suppose I say, boys, do the dishes. Mom and I are going to go out to the back porch, catch up. When I come back, I want the dishes gone. Done, not gone. Keep them, do them. (laughs) So Abby and I go out, share a glass of wine, have a nice peaceful chat about our day. It never works this way. And I come back, and the dishes have not been done. And I say to the boys, 
why didn't you do the dishes? And they say, well, we've given a lot of thought to your command to do the dishes. In fact, we looked at it from every angle to discover its profound significance. We've invited some friends over for a do the dishes study. And together, we have discussed how amazing your command is. Dad, we even know what do the dishes is in Greek. I would rightfully say, boys, what are you talking about? Do the dishes. Well, Dad, we know you want us to do the dishes. But the good news, the gospel, if you will, Dad. The good news is that we are not accepted within this family because we do the dishes. So secure are we in your love and our status as your children that we know that even if we don't do the dishes, you're still going to love us. We didn't get into this family for doing dishes. We're not going to get kicked out of this family for doing the dishes. So we just want to say, Father, we love you. How deep the Father's love for us. You are so merciful and gracious to forgive us for not doing the dishes. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters full of imperatives. Commands from our Lord. It is what Jesus wants us to do in the world. So before we start next week, I feel the need this week to give a defense for why we must actually do what Jesus is going to tell us to do. And I'm going to do that in two ways. I'm going to offer a theological defense of good works and then a practical defense of good works. Let's start with the theology. What I want to do is take our two passages that that I read, passages that seem um, irreconcilable at first glance, And I want to show you how, in reality, they complement one another, even complete one another. Let's start with Galatians. Will preached this passage and did a phenomenal job with it, so let me just um, review it for us. After the fall, God uh, begins to write a redemptive story, a plan to save the world from sin. And the story begins with a man named Abraham. Now, what God tells Abraham, what God promises Abraham seems to be contradictory. He promises Abraham two things. That he is going to save Abraham's descendants, known as the nation of Israel, and also that he's going to save all the nations. So which is it? Abraham's nation or all the nations? Well, the answer comes down to who is truly a descendant of Abraham. Who is a child of Abraham? Paul's argument in Galatians is that it is not those who have the physical lineage of Abraham, but those who have the faith lineage of Abraham. When God promises that children of Abraham will be saved, he had in mind a faith genealogy, not a physical genealogy. The key passage in all this is what he quotes in verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is justification by faith. Abraham believes God, and he is therefore declared righteous by God. And then Paul says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
Sons of Abraham are not, are not those who merely share in Abraham's lineage, but those who share in Abraham's faith, the father of faith. In this way, the salvation that was promised to Abraham's descendants is now open to every nation, to all the world, which is precisely what God promised to Abraham. Paul quotes that promise in verse 8. In you shall all the nations be blessed. The Hebrew word that we translate as blessed carries far greater weight uh, than the way we use the word blessed. This quite literally means God's salvation. God said to Abraham, in you all the nations will be saved. And so this leads to Paul's bottom line conclusion in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Therefore, Paul concludes, salvation is by faith alone. Not by lineage, not by circumcision as a sign of that lineage, not by any other religious good deeds that we implore in the vain attempt to try to justify ourselves before God, only faith, only trust in God to save you can save you, justification by faith alone. All right, now let's turn to James, where Abraham is once again used, but this time it would seem in a contradictory way. James says in verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works. I will show you my faith by my works. Meaning, you don't just say you have faith. Demonstrate your faith by your works. And then to prove his point, James also turns to Abraham. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, wait a minute, just wait, by works? I thought Abraham was justified by faith. Paul's established that. James says, by works, when he offered Isaac up on the altar. You see, after Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that same God said, do you really trust me? If so, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, that may sound strange, to our ears, as it should, but Abraham lived in a pagan world where child sacrifice was tragically normative. Well, God promised Abraham that he would father a great nation, and Isaac was the first generation of that nation, and God asks Abraham to do what the world does, to sacrifice the very first generation, seemingly putting an end to the promise at its inception. And Abraham trusting that God would still find a way to be faithful to his promise, said, even there, yes, Lord, I will obey. And even as Abraham and Isaac are on the way up to the altar, Abraham says, Isaac, the Lord is going to provide another way. He will provide another sacrifice. And of course, God did, and Isaac was spared. But the point James is making is that his act of obedience to God was the action of faith in God. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. James quotes the exact same passage as Paul. But James says that that famous statement about Abraham's faith was fulfilled in Abraham's works. His faith was demonstrated. It was confirmed by the actions of Abraham that displayed beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that yes, Abraham's faith was genuine. And so James' epistle brings this crucial nuance to Paul's epistle. Faith alone is never alone. To be clear, again, faith in Jesus alone can save. Period. That's the gospel. And I join with Paul when he says in Galatians that if anyone preaches another gospel, a gospel that dares to say we are saved by works, let them be accursed. But with the same sincerity and severity, I now join with James that faith without works is not faith. It is a dead faith. And both Paul and James are only articulating what they learn from their Lord himself. If you want to understand how all of this works out, look no further than the teachings of Jesus. Jesus could not be clearer. Anyone who believes in me, faith, anybody who, anyone who has faith in me shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Faith in Jesus is how you will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And then that same Jesus takes us to the judgment seat. That moment when he will indeed separate those perishing from those who have eternal life. And what's interesting is on the surface, it seems to all be based on works. He says to those perishing, depart from me. Because you did not feed the hungry. You did not give drink to the thirsty. You did not clothe the naked or welcome the stranger or visit the sick and imprisoned. And then to those welcomed into the kingdom of eternal life, Jesus says, you did feed the hungry. You did give drink to the thirsty. You did clothe the naked and so forth. In other words, on the day of our examination, we will not be asked, do you have faith in Jesus? That question's not going to come up. Our lives will be examined for the obvious evidence that confirms, yes, indeed, your faith is in Jesus. So which is it? Anyone who believes in Jesus shall have eternal life, or those who worked for Jesus shall have eternal life? The answer is yes. And we must never reverse that order. We do not work for Jesus to have eternal life. We believe in Jesus to have eternal life. But those who believe in Jesus will be obvious to Jesus. For true belief will always be demonstrated through works. So that's the theological case for good works. A case that took me 10 minutes to say, but in that one paragraph of your confession of faith is perfectly articulated if you want to go back to that. Now what I want to do, though, is turn to a practical defense for good works. I would say it's in this practical outworking of this theology I just outlined. This is what weighed most heavily on me during my sabbatical studies. Practically speaking, I think our world is desperate for the Christian church to recover an emphasis of good deeds. And I want to show you why. There's much to be said here. We've got a lot of thoughts from sabbatical. Say a lot of it in the Sermon on the Mount. But today I want to give you three. Three practical reasons why we must recommit ourselves to good deeds. They are compelling, countering, and conquering. Compelling, countering, and conquering. Let me briefly show you what I mean. First, good works are compelling. I could point to studies, but I do not need to because I think you already know it to be true. We are, at least in the West, witnessing the decline of Christianity at an alarming rate. And the generations that are being lost are my age and below, millennials and Gen Z. 
I know that, by the way, hits very close to home for some parents and grandparents who have watched their children and grandchildren forsake the faith of their youth. Well, there are many reasons why this is taking place, why the younger generation is rejecting Christianity. But at the top of that list is that they view it as a faith without works religion. You see, they are called the justice generation for a reason. They are motivated less by the the pursuit of the American dream and more by the pursuit of American justice. Now, consider the Christianity that was handed to them. This is a gross oversimplification. I know there are exceptions, but by and large, this is the culture of evangelicalism over the past 50 years or so. You make a decision to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and thus begins your personal relationship with Jesus, personal being the operative word. You and Jesus, individualistic, without any social implications. And this personal journey amounts to essentially attending church on Sundays, perhaps a midweek Bible study, which I'm a big believer in, a devotional time in the morning, big believer in that too, maybe listen to some sermons, worship music, podcasts throughout the week, and that essentially is what it means to be a Christian. Not to say that evangelicalism hasn't cared about making the world a better place, but those cares are predominantly manifested in a politicized fashion. Elect candidates pass legislation. Speaking candidly, there is nothing compelling about that to our youth. You know what they care about? What Jesus singles out in his judgment day inspection. Feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, caring for the needy. You can mock them as social justice warriors all you want, but I would suggest you heed them. You listen to their rebuke. What if they are leaving the faith because faith without works is a dead faith? The new world that is upon us cares far less about whether Christianity is right and far more about whether it works in this world. They are not asking, is your religion true? They are asking, is your religion beautiful? And do you know what is beautiful? The Sermon on the Mount. An ethical structure that delivers the very world they are striving to create. A Christian community embodying the Sermon on the Mount would be utterly compelling, dare I say, irresistible to our world. So good works are compelling. Next, I want to argue that they are countering. Here's what I mean. If you've been following along in uh, my podcast, you know I've been discussing quite a bit the tribal divide that has consumed our society. I would argue that this polarization has become the pressing issue of our time. And what is fueling that divide is we now live constantly within an artificially manufactured argument. Everything from a global pandemic to the smallest semantic is inserted into an algorithm of tribal debate, manipulated to reinforce your tribal commitments and weaponized against your tribal enemies. Put way more simply, all we're doing is arguing. You know the most effective way to heal that divided society, less bickering, more activity. Speaking of doing the dishes, a few weeks ago, two of my sons were arguing over whose turn it was. Usually I insert myself into that fight, try to get to the bottom of it, find a solution, get them to apologize, all that. 
This time I try something different. They're arguing with no end in sight. So I quietly stand up, walk over to the sink, and start doing the dishes myself. It was fascinating what happened. Not only did it end the argument, both of them came over and started helping me do the dishes. That is what our raging culture needs right now. At some point, somebody has got to choose to remove themselves from the social media fight, rise up, and get to work. And I think it's Christians who ought to do it. Let the world fight endlessly over poverty, its causes, its solution, its legislation. Let the world fight over caring for the poor. Let Christians care for the poor. Nothing could be more countering to our cultural divide than a community that is strangely indifferent and uninterested in the divide. A community that doesn't have time for the argument because they are so busy at work doing what everyone is fighting about doing. Good works are compelling, they are countering, and finally, they are conquering. At the end of the day, the central motivation for our good deeds is that good deeds actually work. Works work. You will hear a lot about this next week when we begin the Sermon on the Mount. But make no mistake, Jesus was not playing games when he assembled his disciples to deliver that sermon. He was launching a revolution. The invasion of a kingdom armed with love and his subversive ethics. And it worked. That's what I want you to see. It actually worked. Doing what Jesus says works in the world. It is the tangible answer to the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The answer to that prayer is doing what Jesus told you to do and heaven will come down. Tom Holland, the atheist historian, released a groundbreaking book a couple years ago entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And in it, Holland, again, an atheist, argues that Christianity has proven to be a two-millennial-old revolution that has completely remade the world into a better place. Things that you and I take for granted, individual rights, liberty, that the strong should not dominate the weak, that we should care for the least of society, that altruism, not power, is the highest virtue, that it's better to suffer rather than to inflict suffering. These ethics that seem so obvious and self-evident to us are an anomaly to history. What we see unfolding in Afghanistan right now is the norm of history. Until Jesus, Jesus gathered his disciples upon a mount captured their imagination with another way forward, another kingdom, God's kingdom, and then sent them out into the world as ambassadors of that kingdom, and it changed the world. And it still can. Friends, we have got to recapture the power of a local community in obedience to Jesus. I know that every news outlet and social media post is telling you that cultural changing power lies in the federal level. It is clickbait nonsense. It does not work. Let D.C. play their silly games. Let us obey Jesus in the bluegrass. And we will see the conquering power of good deeds in the name of Jesus. So on a practical level, why good works? They are compelling. They are countering. They are conquering. Now... Let me close with what I assume we all need. <clears throat> I'm assuming um, you're feeling convicted. 
And you should after a sermon like this. I get it. I certainly was writing it. Here's what I want to say. That's a good, good thing. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus. But that faith alone is never alone. It is always expressed in works. And the fundamental work of faith within the believer is a deep, deep desire to do what Jesus wants you to do. And a deep, deep conviction over failing to do what Jesus wants you to do. So the scary sign this morning is a heart hardened to Jesus and indifferent to his commands. A good sign this morning is a heart in love with Jesus, desirous for his commands and sadness over failing to obey him. So here's my simple question for us this morning. Do you want to obey Jesus? Every Christian in the room right now inside is saying yes. Not have you obeyed him perfectly. We all fail that test. Do you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, want to follow Jesus in obedience? If so, I have some really good news to share. You can call it the gospel if you'd like. Unlike Abraham's story, who ascended the mountain to sacrifice his only son, and yet his son was spared, When the Son of God ascended Calvary, Paul says God did not spare his only Son, but gave him up for us all. Therefore, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus has died. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Now let's get to work for Jesus. Come back next week as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, where we are going to gather together like those original disciples at the Savior's feet and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Now, what would you have us to do? And then we're going to do it. Let me pray. Lord, empower us to be your followers in this world and transform the world around us. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We, we hear a sermon like that, and it is very possible to run to condemnation and guilt and shame, which never leads to repentance. Only kindness leads to repentance. So fill us with the good news of your grace at this table. May no one in Christ leave here under the burden of failure, but beneath the success of Jesus. And may it lead us to lives of devotion to our Savior in whose name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do.